Hey everyone, welcome to the Defend Your Ground podcast. This is Ben, the Executive Director of Blue Ribbon Coalition. I'm here with Simone Griffin, and today we have invited a special guest to be on the podcast, and we have with us uh, former Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt. He has worked for years in the Department of the Interior. He worked for during the almost the full time of the Bush administration. He was a Deputy Secretary during President <coughs> Trump's administration. And he was also the Secretary of the Interior for a part of the Trump administration. And so we know he has been involved in many of the actions that Blue Ribbon Coalition and our members care about. He's been the decision maker on a lot of these actions. And we invited him to be a guest on the show because he's recently released a new book called You Report to Me uh, about his time serving in these positions. And it, uh, I've read it. Simone's read it. And the book is already highly recommended by us. If you care about the things we're fighting for, you need to understand what uh, Mr. Bernhardt is talking about in this book. So we thought the best way to do that was to invite him to to get the conversation started, let you know what this is about. And uh, we would like to introduce Secretary Bernhardt. Why don't you just give everybody the elevator pitch of what is this book, what's it about, and why should they read it? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be on today. I really, really appreciate it. The book, um, which is entitled You Report to Me, um, begins with a vignette about um, my experience in working uh, with uh, President Donald Trump and and being told uh, that I was going to lead the Department of the Interior. And um, after I was told that, I asked him, who do I report to? And he said, you report to me. And I was like, well, I know that's what the Constitution says, but like, who do I really report to? And he was like, no, you report to me. And that was a surprise to me because I had served for eight years in the George W. Bush administration. And during that administration, at times, it could take um, months, literally, for the secretary to have a chance to meet with the president on something that was important to the Secretary of the Interior. So I was skeptical that that would be um, the way the president would actually uh, manage and my relationship with him. But more importantly, as you read the book, you report to me, uh, what the book is really uh, highlighting is that everyone in government, um, the, the local official, the policymaker, um, as the secretary, the members of Congress and the judiciary, as well as the president, all report to the American people. And that fundamentally, everyone involved in that process that has taken the oath of office to well and faithfully uh, carry out the law has a uh, obligation to remember that they work for the American people. And the best way that is identified um, in the executive branch is by um, carefully uh, following the law and also recognizing the policies um, as appropriate for any uh, president that's elected. And so that's the underlying theme of the book. And it really speaks to the need of um, all of us to recognize the respective roles uh, in government and carry those out so we can deliver better results to the American people on the ground. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. Um, I, as I read it, the part of the book that stuck out the most to me is one of the other, an additional main theme is 
what I call the growth of the administrative state. Uh, I worked in Congress. I worked for Senator Lee, and he has similar vignettes with um, his interactions with President Trump. He really was a very accessible president. And everyone who really worked with him and under him in those capacities, that that is a unifying thing I hear from the people that had those relationships. And so that struck a chord when I read that. Um, But this growth of the administrative state, I was in the Senate for seven years thinking I was in the center of the action. This is where the laws get made. This is where we're going to solve the country's biggest challenges. Two and three years in, I learned that's not where I was. Uh, it, like the decisions were, I, I actually was the one who helped Senator Lee get the Senate furniture department to build a custom case, a bookcase for the federal register. And it was three bookcases that were four feet tall that you can stack the federal register in every year. And the door in the front opens and closes kind of like a guillotine. And... <laughs> And we did one year during the Obama administration, and it filled all four of these, or all three of these. It so we filled the complete case. Yes. 12 feet of regulations. And then on top of it, we had a pile of bills that was like this big. Of, that was everything. That was the congressional output for the year. And, and it just sunk into me. I'm like, that is where government is happening, for better or for worse. And today we had the Supreme Court release a decision on the Sackett case, which I'm assuming you've been following closely. You wouldn't, you would have been following this closely given your background. Um, the decision seems to be favorable for the Sacketts, unfavorable for expansive interpretations of administrative power. The Sackett case has stuck out to me because you don't want to be the Sacketts. Once you become the target of the administrative state, it'll consume your life. I bet they've lived and breathed and only this, they've been consumed by this. And that's what happens when you have an out of control administrative state. And they've been fortunate enough to see their injuries remedied by the Supreme Court of the United States. Most Americans don't quite fall in the camp where they're being treated like the Sacketts. How do you get everybody who seems to be not quite the target of administrative action to understand the concerns you're raising in your book? Well, first off, you're, you're right about um, the, the recent decision uh, by the Supreme Court. This is a very significant uh, decision, and it's, um, you know, it follows on the heels of a couple decisions uh, uh, that have have indicated pretty strongly that we have a court um, that is going to continue to hew uh, more closely uh, to the law. And you're absolutely right that if you look at the difference between the amount of paper generated by the Federal Register or versus the laws that are enacted, you have a very different uh, perspective of where laws are uh, and regulations and and what binds us is 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 actually written. But the court here, the court here took a profound step of saying, "Hey, um, words in statutes are going to actually mean what they mean," and and that was significant. What you're saying about the sackets personally is completely true. This is a a matter that has gone on for well over. A decade. I mean, think about that. It, it, your personal life affected by regulators that really had no jurisdiction 
uh, for a decade. And often, and, and this, is, this is really why I wrote the book, often um, administrators of the law stretch the law and impose it on, on individuals. And many individuals simply don't have the ability to uh, push back, don't have the energy to push back. And, and at the end of the day, in order for us to be a nation of laws and to have faith in our process, everybody in the, in the system has to follow the rules. And the rules are this, Congress writes a law, um, the uh, agencies are supposed to carry that law out to the extent that there's ambiguity. And this is really where, where you're talking about. The courts have tended to defer to, um, to agencies. And the a central theme of my book is that that deference, that deference has led to more and more aggressive action by agencies. And um, because the agencies feel like they can continue to push the envelope. And so what you see in this court decision is a, um, is a pulling back of a certain extent on, um, on the agency's uh, interpretation in this case. They basically said, look, the court says, we, we gave you lots of chances to get this right and you haven't, and we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna be really clear here. And um, that's, that's a good thing because it begins to send a message to the agencies that they need to be more thoughtful in their application of the law. And, and one component of my book is that um, the other branches of government, the Congress and the judiciary need to be a little more on top of things. I also think the public policymakers, the senior managers of these agencies need to be more on top of things. And I think if they did that together, um, folks would um, be a little more uh, careful about what they do on a daily basis. And ultimately, ultimately not everyone is in the position to fight back like um, uh, the Sacketts did. And, and no one should have to do that. The, the reality is that the government is supposed to work for the people, not the other way around. And, and here we had an expansion of um, the assertions of authority and, and ultimately the courts have now stepped in and said, hey, here's where the rules are gonna be. And, I, and I'm very hopeful from this decision. I mean, the more often that the courts begin to stand up this way, the more likely it is that the executive branch will become a little more careful in stretching um, law in a way that, that, that treats it like a rubber band. And so I'm optimistic about this case. I've been optimistic about a few of the other decisions of the court. There's also cases coming up in this, um, in this next term um, that will look at questions um, of other regulatory overreaches. And so that's very exciting. But at the end of the day, um, what it really is about is ensuring that the American people have a fair shot at having a government that is accountable to them. You will, you know, the people, your members um, elect the legislative branch, they elect the president, they do not elect the bureaucracy. And, um, and the bureaucracy 
uh, needs to be held uh, held accountable by those other uh, elected entities and by the the courts in order for us to have representative government. Yeah. So what is... can the people, you know, just the average Joe, what can we do to help keep the bureaucracy in check? Um, a lot of people I don't think understand, and, and I love that your book highlights that Washington, D.C., most people think everybody in Washington, D.C. is an elected official, and they don't realize the administrative state and how expansive it is and how many people are not elected and held accountable. So what can people do to help hold the bureaucracy accountable? Well, first off, a couple things. Um, you're absolutely right. When you think about a presidential election, you think, boy, that changes things. And it, sh it, it, and it does in terms of the will of the people voting. But when that happens, about 3,500 people change jobs in the um, executive branch, and about 2.2 million civil servants remain in place. So it is, in one hand, a small change in numbers, but, but it embodies um, the policy direction the president uh, is given by the, by the people. But here's what people can do. And I do think that this is really, really critically important, particularly in areas uh, of the West where federal responsibility makes up so much of the um, you know, administration of federal lands. Um, and people should participate in the processes that exist to them. You know, people should um, make sure that their voices is her are heard on issues that are important. And that takes time and energy and effort or a commitment to be part of organizations like yours. And, and that, is, that is an important component. The other thing people should do is, um, you know, if they're dealing with the government, they should take the time to sit down and look at what the rules and the regulations say. And that takes some effort, but I'll tell you what, it's very fair to ask agency officials to, to follow their own uh, rules and, um, and speak out when they don't, you know, sometimes they don't. And, um, and finally, and this is far and, far and away the most important issue, is explain to your elected representatives when, that you want them uh, to pay attention uh, to the issues of the um, uh, way and the administration is, is managing um, because, because it's very easy for elected officials to want to focus on new stuff, new programs, new this, new that, um, versus the administration of government itself. It's not a very, um, uh, you know, it doesn't have all of the upside of some of the other issues uh, for people. But I, I believe that being involved is important, speaking out is important, and most importantly is voting is important. Voting is critical. You know, at the end of the day, picking who you're um, choosing, who you want to represent you is the most important function any of us can do. And so many of us don't that it's shocking. And that that is, at the end of the day, the, the people get the government that they elect, whether they um, they participate or not. And I think that's the most important factor that I tell people is, is exercise your right and be be consistent in telling people what you want, because it's only by saying we want better 
whether that's better access, more access, whether it's more opportunity, whether it's more uh, whatever it is, absent you carrying your voice forward, you have no chance of being heard. Yeah, I want to add to that. We've actually, one of our, a lot of times people think, well, will it really make a difference if I do that? And I don't know if you've been paying attention to our water situation out west. And we all watched as our reservoirs like Lake Mead and Lake Powell. I mean, you were over the Bureau of Reclamation as the Secretary of Interior. So you've got to, things didn't get quite as dire when you were there. But uh, one of our fastest growing movements is this, we call it Phil Lake Powell. We like there is a, I call it Utah's second biggest church is the people that go to Lake Powell and recreate. Actually, I grew up going to Lake Powell on, uh, I would have been at Lake Powell this uh, from Friday, this this over Memorial Day, I can assure you, my parents would have had me at Lake Powell well, you're, uh, growing up. You're so. missing out on a historic <laughs> year. Um, our Phil Lake Powell project worked. It did, yeah, the... like really worked, right? <laughs> um, no, but what it really did do is we did get thousands of people commenting on the Bureau of Reclamation's drought Operation contingency plan. plan. Right. Before the, I looked at the previous time they went through NEPA on that process, and they had one comment from the public. The rest was from like Water Conservancy District. I, I bet that's managers. absolutely true. I bet that's true. And now they have thousands coming in from the recreation users of Lake Powell. When you were the Secretary of Interior, would something like that have caught your attention? Like, what? How would that have changed your approach to an issue that you thought was getting managed kind of through the back channels of the agency, and now there's this big public? Um, discussion going on. Well, I can tell you, I I get asked that. I've gotten asked that. I've been asked that question a lot. And I know, I have seen firsthand how a single comment has completely changed the trajectory of a decision. Uh, When I was, when I was um, the solicitor of the Department of the Interior, that's the chief legal officer in the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, uh, Secretary of the Interior, um, Kempthorne, was making a decision. And he had struggled with the decision for months. Um, and ultimately, um, he brought me a single comment that he had seen. Um, and he came to me and he said, David, um, this comment is so important to me. Um, I've, I think I've made my decision. I am not, I'm not going to. Um, you know, this is the pathway we're going to go down. And, um, and so my view of that is, you know, comments have all sorts of um, benefits. Um, You know, they, they highlight the importance of an issue, they show community support. But at the end of the day, they also absolutely can and do um, have a fundamental impact on the decision maker. And so I'm a believer that, um, that it's, because I've experienced it, that, that that comment effort does matter. And, you know, the, the point of a comment is to help the decision maker be more informed and make a uh, more informed decision. And that doesn't necessarily mean they'll agree with your comment, but, you know, it may, it may simply change the trajectory of the decision. It may sand or refine the, 
the thinking of decision, but I've absolutely seen it turn somebody around 180 degrees. So I say it's it's critically important, um, and it is um, it is worth the effort. So that's in connection with that. We did ask our users if there's any questions that they would have for you. Like we did a survey through our email list last week. Um, and, and it's related to what you just said, but we did have a user ask, is there anything that can be done to make or entities like the BLM and the Forest Service more responsive to input from the public? Because sometimes it feels like you make a comment and their legal boxes are being checked off and they're still going to do what they want to do with well, that proposed action. It, so it, what, like, what are the, what are the it, things the public can do when they're taking the time to make these comments to make sure they're having the maximum amount of impact? Well, first off, I think, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. I was just going to add on to that question. People think that decision has already been made. So how can, how can we give people confidence that the decision hasn't already been made? Well, well, sometimes, um, sometimes it can be that, you know, uh, the policy of a president is to take a particular action and that's really, uh, an important consideration for, the particular action, um, and that you know that can be um, that can be viewed as a little um, disheartening, and it's important to recognize that that elections also have consequences as to the policy direction somebody wants to go. But my own view is this: that number one, substi every substantive comment has to be dealt with in the process. So. If you raise a new or important issue, that's something that, that has to be addressed. But more importantly, and I think this is, um, this is a, a key, is you, know, you, you have an opportunity, a person or an entity has an opportunity to comment. They also have an opportunity to ask their uh, local elected officials to comment. They have an opportunity to um, seek um, other federal uh, 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 you know, your elected representatives' attention on a matter. And to the extent that there's a consensus in a community that something is really, really unacceptable, it's, it's unlikely, generally, that those issues are not going to be resolved at a, um, at a higher level if, if, if they're raised. Now, they may not always be resolved in the way that um, a particular advocate wants, but in general, um, in general, where there's a constituency of, um, you know, significance on an issue at a local or a state level, it's, it's generally the case that that comment and, and concern is going to have to be resolved, um, up somewhere up the chain. And so I think that's important to know, you know, and it's, it's important for people to have confidence that, you know, the decisions are going to be uh, reviewed and thought about. They, they may not always work out to your benefit, but that's, that's also why we have a system of elections. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you bring up this, bringing in your, the other branches of government, the separation of power, like, getting everybody engaged. That's something we're trying to do. You've probably heard about this new rule that's been proposed by the Bureau of Land Management. Um, they've looked into FLIPMA and discovered that hidden there all along was this authority to go create a conservation lease program. 
And we have big problems with this at Blue Ribbon Coalition. We've been raising alarm bells around it to our users. We've seen through our tools, over a thousand comments have been submitted on this regulation so far. Uh, we have been copying our members of Congress on those, uh, something we commonly do with these Ooh. advocacy tools. And, and since then, we've seen the Senate has introduced a bill, basically a paragraph saying that the secretary should withdraw this rule. Uh, the House of Representatives has introduced So we are bringing in the members of Congress. We have a group letter that we're getting entities to sign, like other organizations like ours. Uh, some of the, we have a lot of county commissioners that are very interested in our take on this bill. And so I feel like we're doing the things you just recommended on that BLM rule. And I'm just kind of curious, like what else could Blue Ribbon Coalition do? And, and a, a rule like that comes out that we aren't really thrilled about to make sure that all our boxes are checked, that we've done everything we can to make sure that the administration thinks long and hard before saying this was a nice effort, but maybe we should rethink this. I think if they like the idea they're proposing, they should introduce it as a bill in Congress. This is one of those ideas that's just too far off the beaten path of what FLIPMA allows for. If the American people need this conservation lease program, Congress should vet it and introduce it. They're the better branch of government to create a program like that. But what else can we do? Well, this is a very um, significant issue. This obviously is just a, this is a new uh, proposed rule. It's, it's certainly a new idea uh, from the administration. And, um, you know, I, I haven't studied it uh, as closely as you have, but I, my concern is that it's, it may be one of the most significant um, public land um, decisions um, and initiatives that we've seen in a in a very very long time, uh, with with very extensive um, impacts and consequences to public access to um, uh, uh, opportunity to the future of uh, Western communities, and I am thrilled to hear that you're begin you're you have taken efforts to begin to think about it and comment on it. And my, my, my view of this particular proposal is that every uh, community um, in the Western United States that is dependent on um, the activities that take place on federal lands, whether those activities are uh, purely recreational or um, uh, traditional uses of, um, of uh, public lands, every single community has a really big stake in how this um, particular uh, rulemaking is is ultimately resolved and 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 and, and finalized. And to the extent that um, people remember, you know, the property clause of the Constitution does does give Congress um, the primary authority. Uh, to deal with these issues, they made a, um, you know, they 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 created uh, FLIPMA, obviously, as you mentioned, and 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 whether this fits in or not, um, it really is such an important issue that everyone uh, in the West, I think, really needs to think long and hard about whether this is a good or bad, um, or maybe a medium or not so good um, idea. And, and comment on it 
really express it to their legislators. But I, I think the people that have the greatest stake in it beyond individuals is really local community leaders because where I grew up in Western Colorado, um, the decisions that were made by a federal land manager could fundamentally affect the hopes and dreams of that local community. You know, the decision to not allow an activity um, could mean that that community missed an opportunity for, for jobs that would be there for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Um, the, the, and, and, you know, it obviously could work the converse as well. And here, um, making um, a, a, a decision to begin a practice like this, to have it uh, defined the way it is, um, these, are, these are very big and consequential decisions to the future of communities. And I think that the people that are elected in those communities uh, really have an obligation to think through what might this mean for their future, um, the future of the entire community, and, and think long and hard about what they ought to be saying about it uh, to, um, obviously, to the Bureau of Land Management and to the Department of the Interior, but also to their um, governor and um and, and federal officials, because it is a very, very significant initiative wherever you ultimately come down on it in terms of good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, and I would add to that, because I'm trying to, one problem we always had in Congress was how do I get a senator from South Carolina or from Oklahoma or from somewhere else to care about this? And I think what we've seen, at least since the COVID-19 pandemic and still ongoing today is that our supply chains actually are fragile. Our globalized markets are not as robust as we might have thought they were. And if you think that a BLM rule that could, it has the potential to devastate the cattle ranching industry in the Western United States. If you don't think that's going to have a, a ripple effect through other parts of the economy into agricultural production centers elsewhere, um, you should think twice about it. Uh, and if, and I kind of felt like during COVID, I thought we're finally in a moment where everybody's the Sacketts now. It wasn't the Congress that engineered the COVID response. It was the administrative state that did it all. And when you fully mobilized the administrative state, it was capable of shutting down a $30 trillion economy overnight. And there were businesses that all of a sudden couldn't open their door the next morning under threat of enforcement from it, what would have been an, an agent of the administrative state, not of the legislative branch. Do you feel like the American people are waking up to the, the potential risks of this? I mean, we've definitely built Absolutely. this administrative state because we see benefits from it. No, I, 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 well, first off, I think, um, you know, the reason I wrote the book, um, and highlighted these issues is because I believe, I believe that the most important thing we can have in our society is that people are confident that when they go and vote an election, that that has meaning and has consequence. And if it doesn't, my great fear is that they simply will not have confidence in the government in any way, shape, or form, and that leads to great division and great conflict. That's that's my personal view, um, and I don't want that to ever happen in our country. 
And so for me, it's, it's, it's critical that people recognize that if they don't like the way things are today, there, there's always an opportunity to create a better tomorrow through the voting box. COVID demonstrated, demonstrated to millions of, and millions of Americans just how erroneous our, um, our bureaucracies and in some instances, our elected officials could absolutely be. And they should have the right to um, get rid of them um, when, when they um, are headed in the wrong direction. There is, there's very few people that could credibly say um, what happened with our school system during the COVID experience was good for anyone. Um, um, if today, I mean, if you go back and look, whether it's looking at test scores, looking at impacts of families, uh, looking at what the real risk of, of COVID was to, to youth, I mean, that was a horrible decision, a series of horrible decisions made by people some of whom were elected, uh, some of whom were appointed at all levels of government. And the reality is that governing takes work. And this is where things get complicated. And when I say work, it takes a willingness to learn the facts yourself. It takes a willingness to understand what the law is that you're tasked with carrying it out, a willingness to learn uh, the processes that go into it. When COVID hit um, with the Department of the Interior, I was the secretary. And one of the first th things I was really pressured to do was close all of the national parks, like permanently, okay, until COVID went away. And I, um, the Park Service had a series of um, public health officers. Uh, they've been within the um, park service for 98 years and they were, they're incredible. And I had two of them come up and they worked with me the entire time. Um, uh, COVID was, was an issue at interior. And when I first brought them in, I sat them down and I said as follows, look, I need to learn every single thing I can about COVID. It's, it, I don't know anything about it. I need to learn everything I can from you and I need you to educate me. But but I will make every decision um, as to what we're going to do in interior. I will make the decisions. I will be held accountable for the decisions. I will take the heat for the decisions, but I'm going to make the decisions. And why did I do that? Because I wanted to make sure that if we were going to begin to close services down, that when we did so, we also had a metric or a tool for how we would open them back up. And ultimately, um, when I began to do uh, the research, there were a couple things that I wanted to know. For example, I wanted to know um, what was the communicability um, outside? What was transmission like outside? And why did I care about that? A lot of interior managed land is obviously outdoors. And I wanted to know, frankly, what we could do with our national parks and public lands in a way that would be responsible. And I had proposals like the following. I had a very large park in California suggest to me that their plan for COVID, they had over 900 people living at the park as employees. Their plan for COVID would be that they would get 900 video cameras 
and they would go out every day and take videos of the park. They would close the park and they would show videos of the park uh, on web so people could experience the park virtually. I couldn't believe it. What we I did- they have their film permits. Oh, that's even better. Um, only, only you guys would have made that joke, but that is really funny. Um, the, um, what, what we basically did is said, no, let's develop a tool that allows us to um, recognize, okay, you know, when you, if you drive to wherever uh, in Utah or you drive to the Grand Canyon, I don't believe every, anybody ever drove to the Grand Canyon, got to the Grand Canyon, got out in the parking lot, and the first thing they said is, we can't wait to get into the movie theater. I bet nobody ever said that. And I, but I bet they said that we can't wait to get through the rim. And so we looked at how we could um, manage these places. And I took a lot of criticism for, you know, we, we did shut things down, I think, through the 15 days for the spread, but then we put them back up. And I took a lot of criticism. But you know what? During COVID, 200, over 200 million people still went to the national parks in 2020. That was down from 300 million the year before. But, you know, if I had taken the Park Service's advice, uh, we would have basically provided a lot of videos. And, and that made no sense from a scientific perspective. It made no sense from a um, public uh, service perspective. It made no sense for America. But you had to be a person that was willing to say to people, look, I've studied the facts myself. I'm going to be held accountable. I'm going to be criticized, but I'm not, I'm not doing what is an impulse uh, decision. And I believe a lot of people during that period of time made impulse decisions. But you're right. More than anything else, we should have realized from COVID the need to have domestic manufacturing, the need to have access to minerals and energy um, from America, have products from America, and recognize just how fragile the world's supply of these things can be in a crisis and be ready to react. Yeah, thanks. Well, we appreciate the time. Uh, I don't know if there, I, I want to be careful of your time. I know you've got, you're a busy guy. I think you're out practicing law now and doing important work for uh, the country, I believe, still. You've written this great book. Um, I think we could probably talk for hours about these things. Uh, so we'll, we, we'd be glad to have you back any time, um, but we want to let you get back to your day. So do you want to have any final well, things to add to well, our first audience? Off, thank you so much for having me on. I, I love these issues and I love what your organization does. I've, I've worked, I, I grew up, um, uh, utilizing public lands with an off-road uh, 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 Yamaha motorcycle to be uh, completely candid that would not pass any emissions test today. Um, and um, uh, and in, my, in front of my house set two, uh, two um, uh, Jeeps, uh, two-door four-wheel drive Jeeps. And so I, I'm a big fan of everything that you uh, do. But I would encourage folks to um, take a look at uh, this book. You report to me. It gives you a vignette or a, an experience of what it's like to really deal with um, the bureaucracy and how challenging it was uh, for the Trump administration to work in that environment. Oh, thank you. I didn't know you were a motorized recreation enthusiast. and So maybe one of these days we'll have to plan a Chevron deference awareness ride.
That would be awesome. That I, would be awesome. I always joked with Mike Lee. I said that he introduced a bill to kind of, through Congress, undermine what the Chevron deference was and kind of assert that the courts should be more proactive in not deferring to the agency interpretations right. of things. And I'm like, well, how do we get people to care about this? And we didn't know. I mean, the, he gave a speech about it at the Heritage Foundation, and and they loved it. But I'm like, this isn't <laughs> enough. I need to... And so we joked about doing a 5K where we do Chevron deference awareness, the 5K. There you go. That's right. You should do a Jeep Um, ride. That's right. And so if you want to come on a Chevron deference Jeep ride, uh, we'll get that. I might take you on. Maybe we could get some other Chevron to support it. Yeah. And so if you want to, we'll organize that if you'll be the guest of honor. um, I'll, I'll, I'll take you up on that. We'll talk about that later. All right. Well, good, good meeting you. And uh, thank you for the book. We've both enjoyed it and we'll make sure as many BRC members as we can get to read it. We'll read it um, because we need them with us in these fights. I believe in what you're doing. The American people, we have a great government and how it's designed has the potential to be even greater. The administrative state has kind of grown beyond its bounds and there's probably a half dozen ways we need to check it back into what it needs to be and you've identified all of those in the book and so if everybody understood what you were writing about my job would be a whole lot easier in getting people to advocate for a better version of what we've got so thank you for what you've done and we'll hopefully be in touch soon on in future discussions thanks a lot yes thank you